think the key is it's actually not hard to figure out like what are you looking for. It's hard to be good at looking for those same things. Like everybody's looking for the same thing. Everybody looks at the market size. Everybody looks at the landscape. Everybody looks at the founders, the product, you know, all that stuff. That's not, there's no secret sauce in like, what are you looking for? It's really how good are you at identifying those same variables that everybody's looking for? Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Romine Sheth, who runs a $50 million bootstrap business, invests a few million dollars a year in startups, and interviews cool folks on his podcast. This was a lot of fun with Romain. Let's dive in. Romain, welcome to the show. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, where I want to start with today, there's a lot of different ways to go with your background and experience. Uh, one thing I'm curious about is, you are a founder and also an investor. Why start a podcast? <laughs> I have to ask about that in the first place. Yeah. It's funny because when I started my podcast, it was like three, four years ago or so now, um, podcasting wasn't like the thing, right? Everybody didn't have a podcast. It wasn't super popular, et cetera. And I'd say I kind of started it honestly with a little bit of that like naivete too, right? Um, <laughs> I didn't have this like grand vision of I want to build a community and a following and it's content marketing and this, that, and the other. Um, I actually just thought of it honestly as like an easy hack to meet and talk to interesting people. Um, and so for me personally, I didn't really care if one person listened to it or a million people listened to it. Um, I just wanted to talk to the most interesting people in the world. And, um, you know, I was fortunate early on to kind of get some really interesting folks, folks like you know, Keith Raboy or you know, the former CEO of Toys R Us, CEO of Boston Beer, uh, Andrew Yang, before folks knew who Andrew Yang was. <laughs> yep. Um, and had just a lot of interesting people that came on. And then that was actually um, the flywheel to get more interesting people to come on, right? And so, you know, I was able to share, you know, folks that I had on before. And and that really started a, a really big flywheel. And kind of 100 and, you know, 15, 120 episodes later, um, I've just been lucky to have a bunch of really interesting people on. And then most importantly, really just build a lot of relationships with many of those people, right? Yeah. Do deals with them, do, you know, partnerships with them, kind of on and on. So, I kind of started it, I'd say, from a, a pretty innocent place, like not a grand strategy or so. And I think, honestly, that's what's kept it a lot of fun and a lot of, uh, and has kept it pure and, and allowed me to keep it going because I've really never had a big expectation out of it. Um, and so I, I have this kind of thing where it's like, you know, happiness is really reality minus your expectations. And I think if your reality is always better than your expectations, like you're going to be happy. And so it's been it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I asked that because I know how it can impact people creating stuff, creating content. Also, to your point, relationships is everything in this game, especially investing. And so from that too, just diving a little bit deeper into that, like I know you mentioned like some co-investors or other, you know, deals have come through that, but take me through some of the impact. I know it's not been necessarily your, your main focus, you're doing it for fun and also to enjoy it and meet people, which is also like I've done just a grind podcast before. But take me through kind of the impact of that on your career, life, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's had a huge impact. Um, and I think it's 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 one of those things when you start projects or you do things and you actually do it for like the love of doing it or the actual kind of like purity of enjoying it. Um, typically, like better things come about than if you are trying to get some sort of end, you know, goal or so out of it. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the things you mentioned, I mean, I've, you know, invested in over 50 companies now, a lot of those have come, you know, from many of those relationships. Um, you know, we've had you know, athletes, Olympians, et cetera, on the podcast as well. We, we did something really cool in LA, you know, late last year where we had, you know, we brought together about 80 folks, you know, NBA players, other athletes, founders, et cetera, 
uh, and just, you know, kind of had a one day kind of summit and get together with tons of interesting people. Um, and, and then, you know, just advising a lot of startups also, right? Like whether it's taking advisory shares and companies, just helping folks out um, on the advisory board of two SPACs. So a lot of just interesting kind of organic things, all the things that you would imagine, right, kind of come, I think, with being, you know, helpful and in the ecosystem and having real relationships. Um, I'm a big believer of if you surround yourself with interesting people, you know, interesting people do interesting things. And I think if you can you know, not ride on that wave, but you can also contribute kind of value and interest uh, to that equation, then, you know, a lot of this is serendipity and, and kind of creating the surface area around serendipity. So yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it's been a huge, huge impact. I think, you know, 12 months ago, I probably had a thousand followers on Twitter and now I have almost a hundred thousand <laughs> and the surface area of just that reach and that distribution um, and, you know, the podcast flywheel and having invested in a bunch of companies and, and fortunately a bunch of companies that have done very well it just all creates, you know, this kind of organic flywheel of sorts of, you know, it's easier to get into the next company or founders, you know, will return your call or your DM or whatever it is. Um, there's more folks you've never, you, know, you met through the podcast, et cetera, that will bring you into opportunities. You know, there's different ways to do things, you know, at scale. So it just, it just keeps kind of amplifying upon itself, but it's all the, it's all the core things that you, uh, you mentioned. Yeah. I, I heard an interview recently. I forgot who it was exactly, but they were saying basically in creating different things on the internet and everything, it's like, especially as an investor, you're trying to find like that needle in the haystack. Right. But as you create things, you essentially had the needle in the haystack come to you, which is, which is yeah. like the perfect way of kind of putting it. And, and one of the things you mentioned there with the Twitter side of it, we'll get into a lot of different investing things too, but with the Twitter side of it, what has been your approach to that in terms of how you go about that? You've had a lot of things go viral, a lot of reach, as you say. Like, yeah. what has been your approach to that as an investor, as a founder? I'm curious in how you use the platform because I know how powerful it can be, especially in investing, but I'm curious as how you kind of approach that. Yeah, it, it can be. I mean, it's really powerful, right? I and, and I definitely didn't understand the value of that. Otherwise, candidly, I think I would have started doing it a long time ago. <laughs> um, it's, it's really valuable. When you have distribution and reach, I mean, if you think about kind of investing at the end of the day and getting into companies, right? Founders are really looking for like check to helpfulness ratio, check size to helpfulness <laughs> ratio, right? Yep. And um, it's really hard to kind of come in as an angel and say, hey, I can help you, you know, with strategy or I can connect you with people, so on and so forth. Like, yeah, maybe that's all true, but you know, the best companies and the best founders don't really need your help, right? If anything, they kind of need you to stay out of their way. And, yeah. you know, when you have really top tier firms coming in, they're playing the same playbook, right? Hey, we can introduce you to XYZ. Hey, we're going to, you know, give you all this value, et cetera. We can probably have a separate conversation of whether <laughs> that actually value pans out or not, but it's the same, it's the same kind of thing. And so I think if you're trying to play the same playbook as everybody else, um, you're going to lose, right? Because it's kind of the same thing. Like if you're starting a startup and you're trying to play the same exact playbook as an incumbent, uh, you're, you're just going to lose. Right. And so I think what you have to find is you have to find kind of your different, you know, your mojo or your different kind of shtick. And, and I think it's actually really helpful when you're trying to get into the best companies where you can just actually have a very clear value proposition for the founder, right? Hey, I can help you with a bunch of this other stuff. And if you want intros and this, that, and the other, like, I'm kind of there as a sounding board, but yeah. really it's two things. One is I know I can help you on distribution and reach, right? And I can help you with, you know, organic uh, virality or organic, you know, reach in a trusted way because I have an audience that trusts me, right? And there's a credibility behind that. Um, so that's one piece. And then the second piece is, you know, I can be there for you as a sounding board, right? I think a lot of the understated value of angels often is, 
you know, your board and your venture investors, you have a different set of incentives and incentive structures with them, right? And so, you know, while you may try to be, you know, super tight at the hip with the board, et cetera, you know, who knows, right? If the company's not doing well, you might have to go to those same people for a bridge round. And you may not want to share, you know, certain information, at least in the first iteration as it is in your head, right, with them as it's stated, right? And so what I like to do is really actually say, you know, I can help you a lot with distribution. And by the way, like, there's a ton of founders that I've invested in, you know, fortunately, without my help, I've done incredibly well. And so, you know, there's a bunch of folks that I can kind of give you as references that I'm a good person to have in your circuit, right? And I think at the end of the day, that's what most founders are really looking for out of angels. I think often, you know, we can kind of propel these like really large visions of what is the value add and the this and the that. And I think if you're a strategic angel, it's really like, you know, can you give something that actually moves the needle for them in a unique or interesting way? Um, and are you just somebody that they want in their corner, right? And on the journey. And so it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is, I think if you do things a lot for kind of like the purity of doing them, right? Your, your question was kind of very specifically around, I, I know I gave you a little bit of a roundabout answer, but your, your question was very specifically on like, how has the approach to Twitter been, right? Um, there hasn't really been an approach, right? And I, I think that's actually why there is that virality or organic reach. I mean, you see people on Twitter all the time that are like, you know, um, that get 20, 30, 50,000 followers, 100,000 followers, whatever it is. And then they have these threads that also go viral. That's like, you know, I grew from X to Y in, you know, five months or whatever. And this is what yeah. I did. And then they lay out this like super scientific methodology, right? I reply 10 times a day. I post three times a day, this, that, the other. Uh, that hasn't, you know, look, that works, right? And like, clearly it works and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that hasn't been my approach because it doesn't feel authentic to me, right? Like it's yeah. my, my approach is actually, you know, I'm operating, I'm investing, I'm learning these things. Some of these things I'm learning on the fly. Some of these things, maybe I have a little bit more experience than other people do. And I want to share those insights back in an accessible way for people. Um, and I think that's how you actually build, you know, when you look at top line numbers and kind of growth trajectory, maybe a little bit slower of a way to grow. Um, but I think the loyalty, the trust, et cetera, that you manifest with, you know, your audience, et cetera, is, is just a lot, it's a lot different, right? So, yeah. so my approach has been, you know, it, it hasn't been kind of super scientific. Now, as you do these things, you, you learn tactics and you learn <laughs> how things kind of hit and stuff. Yeah. Um, but my approach has really been like, Writing is pretty therapeutic for me, right? As an operator and a CEO. And um, if I can share those lessons, great. Um, I enjoy doing that. And it's a way for me, you know, when I think when you think about things or you talk about things versus when you write them down, when you actually write them down, you have to you have to kind of snuff out the logic, right? Like you can't get away with just like saying something at a high level. So I, I do it for that reason. And, and uh, you know, fortunately, it's really worked. Yeah. And there's a great book called Show Your Work by Austin Kleon. And I, I love that because it is that exact thing. It's like, as you're going operator and company, making investments, you're sharing those things, things you're learning along the way. And that always resonates. I think that's the same thing with like, like Gail at Vitalize. Like she's sharing insights from having conversations with founders every day. And like, that is real tangible things that like she can own because that's her actual conversations that she's having. And you can yeah. leverage that to obviously grow and people kind of understand what you're doing and trust you and everything is like that. But one of the things you mentioned a little bit back is you did like 50 investments so far. Like what got you into angel investing in the first place? Yeah, I, I think the biggest unlock for me was, um, so I'll say kind of, I think when you're a founder or you're an operator, whatever, whatever it is, uh, talking to other people is actually really helpful right? Like other operators, other founders, other senior folks, et cetera. It's really, really helpful. Um, I think at the end of the day, whatever space you're in, 
if you're running a business, like a business is a business at the end of the day, right? Boils down to the same equations. How much cash do you have in the bank? How fast is your revenue growing? Is it actually good revenue and profitable revenue? You've got customer issues, partner issues, employee issues. I mean, it's all the same things at the end of the day. Now there's nuances, right? If you're running a consumer company, enterprise SaaS, like hardware, this, that, the other, there's obviously all sorts of nuances. But at the end of the day, businesses boil down to like the same, pretty same fundamental elements. And so for, for me, I just, you know, I like being in the community, et cetera, I really enjoyed talking to other founders um, and especially founders that were, you know, doing quite well and learning from them. Right. And, and oftentimes I think what I found in our conversations was I would go into the conversation wanting to learn from them and, and I did learn from them, but sometimes there were things they learned from me. Right. And there was a little bit of that exchange. And you know, there were a lot of those companies that, you know, ended up doing extremely well. And then I, I kind of said, well, wait a minute, you know, there's kind of a less organic way to keep in touch or develop a relationship. Hey, this was a great conversation. Maybe we'll get coffee in six months. Right. Something like that. Yeah. Um, but is there a relatively low risk, you know, type of way to actually get involved and get more deeply engaged? Right. And and I found that through angel investing. Right. And And I think it was. You know, if you already have the relationship with this founder, you're adding value, they're adding value, you like each other, you believe in the business, the business is doing well, like, why not put some skin in the game? Why not ask to put some skin in the game, you know, and enjoy some of that, you know, upside and being a part of the journey and so on and so forth. And so that was a pretty big, like, mental unlock for me, probably three, four-ish years ago. And that's really when I started more actively investing. Um, And I'm so glad I did because it, you know the money aside or the economics aside, et cetera, you know, obviously there's a part of angel investing, which, you know, we all, you know, want to hit big returns and that's, that's all fine and well, but I think it actually builds a much better bond and a much better cadence, right. With those same people that you want to keep in touch with or kind of be along for the ride. And kind of the way I think about things is, you know, I'm, I'm 32 and the way I think about relationships and just like this journey, et cetera, is, you know, we're going to be doing this for the next, you know, hopefully 40, 50, you know, plus years. Right. And so relationships are really like long-term things. And um, it's really cool to be a part of the journey of folks that you see, they're kind of hitting that inflection point and they're hitting that inflection point right now, but just imagine where they're going to be in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. And so, you know, kind of keeping that circle tight knit and doing it in an organic and a true way, not a transactional way, right. Of having real relationships, real friendships, et cetera. I'm just a big believer that it, it keeps increasing that serendipity or that surface area of serendipity. Right. And, and everything in venture or everything in tech is so asymmetric, right. One yeah. bet, one outcome, you know, can underwrite or subsidize 50 outcomes, right. Or a hundred outcomes, a hundred bets. And so the, the mindset of saying, you know, how do I get into the game? and not just observe the game from the sidelines was a big unlock for me. I spent a couple of years consulting at McKinsey and the ultimate, I think there's a lot of great things about McKinsey. There's a lot of not so great things about McKinsey. Uh, but I think one of the big pieces that people that come from those backgrounds or even you know great investment banks or law firms or whatever service providers basically fall into the trap of is um, you give the advice, you build the relationship, et cetera, but you don't really have any skin in the game. Right. And, and all the upside, and all the like enjoyment and fun, I think, accrues to people that have skin in the game. Yeah. So it was it was kind of an unlock, but that was that was the way I approached it, and that's that's the way I still think about it today. Take me through that. So going from that, starting with angel investing a few years back, and then you mentioned on Twitter, like basically in the last year, you've like doubled down essentially. 
why in the last year is it more of a matter of just having capital you want to have more time like what was what was it that kind of unlocked that to be able to do more of it yeah uh capital is definitely part of it right i mean i think when you have you have capital um it allows you more flexibility and freedom to do things uh, now i will say like there's a lot of people on twitter that and i think this is super productive and constructive and thoughtful actually which is there are a lot of people on twitter that actually break down this nomer or this idea of like you have to have capital to invest a ton, right? I mean, there are founders in great deals that are taking 1K checks, 2K checks, 5K checks, right? And, yeah. and things like AngelList and stuff are helping do this, right? It was impossible three years ago to do that, but founders are doing that now, right? I wouldn't say every founder is doing it. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, I wouldn't bank on that as necessarily being a strategy, but I think what what's basically happening more and more is capital is not becoming the barrier to get in, right? all these scout programs and, you know, SPVs and rolling funds and this, that, and the other are ways for people that may not have the capital right now to be able to augment and say, well, I have the access or I have the value or I can spot these things, you know, how can I actually get into them? So, so capital has been, you know, partially an unlock for me, uh, but I would say just for everybody listening, especially aspiring folks, you know, don't mentally think of capital as a lock, right? Um, The other piece I think is just you, you, you have a better idea of what you're doing, right? And so like, you know, you've seen a lot more, you have better judgment, et cetera. And so I haven't necessarily doubled down on the number of deals, but I've definitely doubled or in some cases tripled and quadrupled down on the amounts per deal, right? And, and I think that also is, you know, it's a matter of conviction, it's a matter of confidence in your own judgment, but it's also a matter of, I think when you're an angel, and you're not, you don't have to be branded kind of as an early stage VC or a late stage guy or a crossover person or this, that, and the other. Yeah. Um, you can kind of underwrite however you want to underwrite. So like there's a bunch of companies I've underwritten into that are already at a billion dollar valuation, but, you know, and I'm not expecting to hundred X my money there. Right. Um, there's seed checks in which, you know, I want to ideally 50 to hundred X and kind of my seed portfolio, I underwrite in a slightly different way. Right. And so there's kind of a mix and, and kind of gamut also of, I think, yes, having more capital, et cetera, is great, um, but it's really having more judgment, right? More judgment, more connectivity, more conviction um, that's driven kind of that amplification. Of, and, and I think the other part is like when you see companies you've invested in and you've had the, you know, you had the benefit of looking for three, four or five years, right? And seeing the trajectory and how those companies have played out, uh, you can also then extrapolate that learning to new companies that you're looking at today. It's very hard, I think, if you haven't been a part of like fast compound growth in some respect, whether that's investing in a company, being a part of a company, founding the company, whatever it is. If you haven't been a part of that or seen that in any respect, I actually think it's really hard to mentally extrapolate that, whoa, in five years, this thing could be massive, right? And so, yeah. so that's that's been a big part of it. Having some capital, yes, but but the, the judgment piece, certainly. On that too, take me through like the allocation in terms of how you look at that. Because you mentioned, you know, you're investing at different stages. You can be opportunistic as an angel. For you yeah. though, what does it look like in terms of how you're allocating? What types of things you're looking for in companies? I'm just curious on how you kind of have uh, viewed that over the last number of years. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's there's two elements to your question, Justin. One is like the al- the pure like allocation part, which is like more of like a personal finance kind of perspective or decision, yeah. right? So I can walk you through that. And then I think the other part is like. The evaluation part right like what are you looking for lit- yeah. literally in the company to make the decision so the allocation part you know and everybody has different ways to think about this i mean i i think about this as like you know 15 to 20 percent of my net worth i want in like very high upside very asymmetric 
you know, if it goes to zero, it goes to zero, uh, but very, very, like very high risk, very high reward. Right. And the other, you know, 80 odd percent, I'm actually pretty conservative, right? I'm like a passive index fund kind of person, yeah. right? Um, et cetera. And I think that's important also at different stages of, of, you know, capital accumulation, et cetera, too, because I think there's something very real of like the joy of getting more um, actually starts to become less and less than the downside or the pain of losing a certain amount, right? Because, um, you know, there's only so much you can consume, right? So, so I think uh, from a kind of allocation perspective, that's how I kind of think about it mentally. Now that 15, 20% is a big broad bracket. That can be crypto, that can be early stage stuff, late stage stuff, it kind of smatters, you know, across the board, right? Uh, but I kind of think like 15 to 20%, you know, have risk, bet on yourself, so on and so forth. Um, and then, you know, kind of breaking that down further, I don't have like a really good logic of like of that 15, 50% is early stage, 20% is later stage, et cetera. Uh, that's where I think I go into actually the latter part of your question, which is the more opportunistic part, which is um, looking for companies and looking for things at inflection points. So I think one of the biggest, um, you know, startup myths or so, and this market is a little bit different because valuations have gotten pretty high, but the, the idea of like, you know, all the returns are in like early stage, the earlier you go, you know, the better the returns you're going to get. Right. And and look, on an absolute basis, is that true? Mathematically, obviously, right? If you invest in something at a $10 million cap, $5 million cap, whatever it is, you ostensibly have, you know, the highest upside. Yeah. But when you look actually from a returns perspective, et cetera, you know, I think there's there's so many companies now that are valued in this like half a billion to billion range that are hitting really nice inflection points or like the absolute multiple, like, yes, all of these companies are not going to become hundred billion dollar companies. Yeah. Obviously. Next right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But a lot of these companies are going to become, you know, four, five, 15, et cetera, billion dollar companies with the relatively clean line of sight on how they get there. If you're just patient over the next three, four, five years. Right. And I'm talking adjusting for like, you know, the multiple compression we're seeing in the market right now and so on and so forth. Like there's a pretty clean yeah. line of sight that like these companies are growing you know, 50 to hundred percent year over year. They have really good economics. They have scale, you know, there's a clear line of sight here into how can this company 10 to 20 X. Right. And I think when you think about it like that, or you see enough opportunities like that and, and with significantly lower risk, by the way, right. Because not only is it the risk of, you know, this company doesn't materialize, but it's also, you know, the capital structure, right? So when you have preferred stock and you have liquidation preferences, you know, and let's say you're betting on a company that has, you know, $500 million valuation or a billion dollar valuation, and that company has raised, you know, a hundred million or so, you know, remember, as long as that company sells for a hundred million, you're getting your money back, right? And look, there are crazy deals happening all over the place where companies have 5 million in ARR and they're getting valued at a billion dollars. I'm not talking about those companies, <laughs> right? I'm talking about the companies that have, you know, 50 to hundred million in, in revenue, have great economics, are maybe not growing as much of a rocket ship, but are still growing, you know, 50% year over year, et cetera, which by the way, for that scale is pretty damn good, right? So there's a lot of structural opportunities that become really interesting when you're evaluating to say, hey, I want to get into more of those because maybe the absolute upside is not as high, but the risk uh, is is much lower. And ultimately the game is a risk reward game. It's a pendulum, right? And so like, if you could tell me, and this would be, you know, to be clear for everybody listening, this would be insane that, hey, I could get 25% returns annualized for the next 20 years. Insane, obviously, yeah. extremely, extremely high benchmark, right? Um, 
But there's two ways to think about that. One way to think about that is like, I'm going to make a bunch of early stage bets and I need a thousand X outcome and a whole bunch of others that lose so I can get to that. That's a very, very wide range. Imagine if you could kind of tighten the band to say, okay, the upside is smaller, but the risk is less and less. And so like you're, you're tightening the standard deviation and get the same ultimate outcome. Like that's the outcome you want to go for, right? You always want to go for like, how do you get to that bar you want to hit, but with way less standard deviation because the variance then on the upside or the downside, you know, if you underperform or overperform, right? Let's say underperform. If you underperform, you're still going to be like in really, really good range. Whereas in, in super early stage, the variance can be incredibly, incredibly wide, right? So that's yeah. that's kind of the way I think about it. Like the I think all the all the elements of like what do you actually look for are kind of the same things everybody talks about, right? Market, team, product. I think you obviously have less information when you're early stage. You have a lot more information when you're later stage. Later stage, you're really underwriting, like you know you're really underwriting like the structure of the deal, you know, when is it going to go public or when is there going to be liquidity uh, and the valuation, right? That's really, you're focusing a lot more on like financial engineering of sorts at that point in many respects. Uh, And early stage, like you have no information. So you're like betting on the founder and you're betting on the vision and the market and the team and the product and and all that stuff, right? So none of that stuff I think is all that different in terms of valuation. I think it's pretty standard stuff. I think the key is, it's actually not hard to figure out like, what are you looking for? It's hard to be good at looking for those same things. Like everybody's (laughs) looking for the same thing. Nobody has the secret sauce of everybody looks at the market size. Everybody looks at the landscape. Everybody looks at the founders, the product, you know, all that stuff. That's not, there's no secret sauce in like, what are you looking for? It's really how good are you at identifying those same variables that everybody's looking for? And by the way, that's where there's a lot of like price, you know, dislocation. That's where for somebody, um, you know, Andreessen was really famous for this over the last 10 years, where a lot of venture firms would say, you know, everything Andreessen looks at is super, like they're doing all these overpriced deals. It doesn't make any sense, you know, on and on and on. Um, and, you know, it wasn't super popular when they did Coinbase or Airbnb or, you know, a lot of these deals. A lot of people thought they were overpriced. Um, I would argue it wasn't, it clearly wasn't overpriced, right? I mean, the returns <laughs> have been fantastic on those. Um, they just looked at it or evaluated it in a different way, right? And that's, that's really the key. I know we have a minute or so left, but I'm just curious real quick with running companies, investing, Twitter, all these different things. How are you allocating your time? What does that look like yeah. for you? I'm just, I'm just curious. I've talked to a lot of angel investors who some have struggled to do angel investing as they, as they're an operator. Some have done it, you know, before or after. Like, I'm just curious on how you've kind of approached that too. Yeah. I think if you look at all these things as separate things, then it can be really challenging. And, yeah. and candidly, it can be kind of irresponsible. Like if you've taken venture dollars <laughs> and like you have an obligation to your investors, your employees, et cetera. Uh, you can get spread really thin. I think if you look at these things, like I look at them, which is actually they're very interrelated to one another, um, then I think it actually, and I I like a phrase you used earlier, which was this idea of like building things that come to you versus going out and reaching out for them. That's really the key, right? And so the key is like, you know, if you have a Twitter audience or you have a good portfolio or whatever it is, like, yeah, it, it takes work to get there, right? Like people don't just like hand you allocation in companies or like, you know, you like sometimes you get lucky, but a lot of times, like if you have a, a bunch of companies that have done well, typically that's not all luck. Like there's some element of scale, judgment, connectivity, whatever that's that's involved there. I think the key is the only way to do these things is actually to look at them actually as more interrelated. So like if I get to know a founder of a later stage company and I'm saying this can help me in my business or the way I'm thinking through a current problem or so. And oh, by the way, we just happen to build a good relationship and I'm going to write a check in. Well, the like getting the help on my issue, making a relationship and angel investing all happened in that one 
one hour interaction or two hour interaction, whatever that might be. Right. And so I think the more you actually find a way to tie these things together, um, the less of a man, I'm spread all over the place and I'm doing all these different things. It actually yeah. ends up being really cohesive in what you're doing. And by the way, I think that's where things actually really compound. Right. So like, for example, if I was like, Hey, Twitter is a part of my job and I need to write 10 hours a week and do three threads a week and this, that, and the other, like, okay. And on top of that, I'm running a company. And on top of that, I want to invest. And on top of that, I have a podcast. And on top of that, and on top of that, and on top of that, then you get to a situation where you're like, okay, maybe you can do it. Maybe you can work a hundred hours a week or like, you're probably going to burn out or candidly, like, I don't want to work a hundred hours a week. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so that's not going to happen. But if you start to think about it as like, okay, well, it's not really stacking and it's more like interspersed and interwoven. Um, yeah, you put in a 50, 60 hour week, like you work hard, et cetera. But it turns out that a lot of these things are actually interrelated. Right. Yeah. And so I think, I think that's really the key. I think for anybody that's looking to like getting into doing stuff like this, which is maybe building an audience, maybe, you know, investing, maybe operating, you know, doing all of them at the same time, maybe podcasting and podcasting, I kind of podcast Twitter. Like I think of as like creating, there's the creating content bucket. There's the investing bucket. There's the operating bucket. And I think if you look at those three distinctly, um, it's very, very hard. I think if you look at them in an interrelated way, it's actually, I mean, it's work, right? To be clear. But <laughs> yeah. it's not, um, it's not impossible by any means. And, and I think that's, that's why it's also just like one, one kind of final point is it's so important to be in the game, right? I think there's so many people on Twitter or like this, you know, LinkedIn or whatever it is that, you know, want to talk about it or talk about how do you, you know, manage someone or what's your leadership philosophy or this, that, and the other. And I just say like, it's really hard to do that if you're not playing the game, right? Like I think a lot of where the content for me at least comes from is like, I'm playing the game, you know, all day, every day. And so like, I've had to fire people before we've bought companies before we've invested this, that, and this. So when there's a thread on like M&A or there's a thread on, you know, hey, how do you let somebody go or managing an underperformer or managing a star performer or whatever it is, like, those are things that have actually happened, right? <laughs> and so when you're writing those threads or you're writing those thoughts, you're not actually spending like three, four hours being like, hey, I need to kind of construct an artificial situation. And then what would I do in that artificial situation? And oh, hey, here's this great like piece of Twitter content. And maybe that accomplishes like your goal of it gets you followers and this, that, and the other. But it's not a sustainable way to do it. It's a pretty exhausting way to do it, right? I think when you're actually living the game itself, um, a lot of these things just come out kind of organically. So I think I think the most important thing is like, if you want to build audience, if you want to do all these different things, et cetera, you know, get in the game, find a company you can invest in, right? Be an employee at a fast growing startup, start your own thing, make mistakes, whatever it is, but get in the game. And if you get in the game, right, not only does it help you with all those other elements, but other people that are in the game attract to you also, right? And so your peer set or the people you're you're interfacing with, kind of back to that earlier point of increased serendipity, surface area, so on and so forth. Um, you just increase that because you're surrounded with other people that are playing the game. Where's the best place for people to reach out to you, connect with you as well if they'd like to, or me? Yeah, uh, I mean, Twitter's great, right? Like I, I try, I'm not perfect at it, but you know, when I put out content or so, or people DM me, I, I try to respond back. Um, I got a ton of DMs, so I'm not perfect at it, but I, I try to engage <laughs> as much as I can. So yeah, Twitter Twitter is great. If you want to like my handle kind of in the show notes, it's very simple. It's yep. just my first name and last name, you know, at Ramin Shep. 
Uh, but yeah, Twitter, I think, I think Twitter is like the internet's town square. So that's, that's the best way to interact. <laughs> I love it. No, thank you so much for taking the time to come to the show today. Awesome. Thanks, Austin. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc, or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.